On May 14, 2012, STCF hosted a one-on-one conversation between Lee Brewer and Taylor Mack, moderated by Mark Russell. They converse about their challenges, influences, and artistic visions as hybrid theater artists. Hello, I'm STC Director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to STCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. Well, it's, it's quite an honor to be here. Uh, this room, I don't know if all of you know, was one of the homes of the Ridiculous Theatre. So it's a really hallowed space uh, for me, especially. Uh, and the work of Charles Ludlam, is, uh, he's uh, in the room and he's in these guys' works as well. Um, Lee Brewer is... Um, if there was a national treasure role like there is in Japan, Lee would be one of those national treasures, I believe, uh, in my book. And, and we should probably write Obama and make that happen. And, um, and Taylor would be like legend in waiting. I don't know. It's, it's early on. But um, so it's a great pleasure to have you here. I want to find out, uh, and I think these folks too want to know, like, well, how did you get started in this? Taylor, when you want to start? In this game, you know? This um, theater thing. Yeah, well, the theater thing was a childhood thing. You know, I started when I was a kid. But, um, but I think the, the, the more interesting part is where, where I, I decided to make my own work and branch out from the kind of how I was raised in suburbia to think of as of theater. And that was um, uh, when I came to New York and I went to regular old acting school and I got out and and um, and not, I, 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 some for some reason whatever reason it was the system wasn't working for me and thank God because I and then decided to just kind of make my own stuff and um, and it was really because I, I, I started making the kind of work I do because I wanted to but also because uh, the people that would book you, Usually, you have to ask for permission to be creative in the arts, you know. And and in the club world, you don't have to ask for permission. You show up, you say, "Can I do something?" And they're like, "Yeah, why did you ask? Just do it." So, um, so I started working in the club world, and I and I learned pretty quickly that in order to um, for the story to be important in the club world enough for people to pay attention to it, that it had to be a certain kind of work. It had to have certain kind of dynamics to it. Um, It had to be more theatrical. Uh, You know. You can utilize a little bit of that method work that they give you, but basically throw it out the window, you know, <laughs> and go for it and get a little bit more Greek-like. And so, um, so that's when I started developing, you know, the, the kind of work that I, I make now. And so it was about kind of trying to bring theater into the clubs and still allow, still make it so that people could hear it and, and experience it and enjoy it also, and it could give them something. Um, and and now now that I have a bit of a more established semi-established career, my my what I'm doing now is bringing all that club work back into the theaters because that's where it feels like, other than this man's theater, <laughs> uh, things are a little stale, you know. So mm-hmm. it's fun to kind of bring that. What clubs did you start in? Um, very small clubs, um, like the Pyramid. Okay. Um, uh, the cock, the slide, the hole. Oh, you know? <laughs> I had to ask. Like the gay bars that you know, and I often say that you know the only uh, 
well, Penny Arcade says that a queer isn't a gay or straight, but someone who is ostracized by society to such a degree as a young person, they could never possibly ostracize anyone else. <laughs> so, um, so when I, so, and there are, the queers always come down to the little gay basement bars, which are really sex clubs, to see the performance and stuff. And um, the only, there was just a few hetero queers that would come down to the basement bars and see my work, and Mark Russell was one of them. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, and anyway, so I, I credit you all with kind of helping kickstart some of my stuff. Yep. Or Brent, you know. Yeah. Making the bridge, help building the bridge over. So cool. Anyways. Um, and Lee, uh, what gay clubs did you start in? <laughs> I lived over the pyramid. <laughs> did you live over the pyramid? I lived over the pyramid. You shat on the pyramid. We were, <laughs> no, 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 no. Take this. We were doing The Maids with Lady Bunny and RuPaul. Of course. <laughs> Believe it or not. They would come up and we would rehearse. Oh, it was really you amazing. Know, I, but this is another yeah. generation. Uh, where did you start? Oh, this stuff was was it San Francisco? Let's right? start what, Mark? Because I, I started well, one thing over the Pyramid Club. I know that. <laughs> you know. Uh, um, yes, I'm proudly a hetero queer. You know, uh, I I I love gay art, and uh, I love Charles, uh, and was lucky enough to get to know him quite well before he died, and uh, think he's one of the greatest artists of the 20th century and wish to hell he would be recognized by a wider circle, academia and such, you know, because as I understand, Taylor and I have both been so heavily influenced by the ridiculous, uh, I mean, Dollhouse is an homage to the ridiculous. It's a little bit masked because it's a little bit intellectualized and Taylor takes it into a little bit more club land, but it's the same shit coming from the same place and it's all Charles, you know, so. Mm -hmm. This is hopefully he's here, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I kind of, uh, I started out writing and then I wanted to make films. Hmm. And this is many, many, many years ago at UCLA in LA and there wasn't no independent cinema at that point. You could just go to the studio into the mailroom and see who winked at you. That was about the way into film, you know. And, um, you know, that isn't the route that I went, so I had this uh, uh, feeling that I wanted to try to make film a metaphor and do live films. So I started doing a theater that had a filmic, con you know, continuum to it. And I uh, uh, started out working with the San Francisco Mind Troupe and okay. uh, with uh, Ronnie Davis. It was called I, Archie I Davis. I studied with Dan Chumley. Oh, really? Really? And we were both did the San Francisco and the Actors Workshop and all those people there. And then, you know... Uh, did some shows there, and then went to Europe for a while, and mm -hmm. came, came back to New York. But it was just wanting to do live films. And, you know, the workshop was a little, when they went to Lincoln Center, the scene was just too straight for me. And I wanted to, you know, get more involved with what eventually, at that time they were called happenings and shit like that, uh -huh. and eventually it became performance art and your world, you know. And we were kind of with one foot in it and one foot in, quote, experimental theater, and the other in, quote, performance, you know, right. and looking how one translated into the other. And it was just all economics, because if you're a performance guy, you can just put your microphone and your costume and the suitcase, and you're over there. Right. You have theater, you've got this company, you a truck, yeah. and all this other shit. You know. I always say, you know, call me, you call me performance artist or an actor or a playwright, depending on what grant I'm applying for. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, frustrated filmmaker, you know, as the actor practitioner is about the way to look at it. Huh. When I finally got to make a film, I was ecstatic. You know, it was just a ball. You know. um, the Marble Minds kind of came together in Paris, right? It did, but its roots went all the way back to San Francisco. Joanne Acolytis and Bill Raymond worked with Ruth in the San Francisco meme shoot. Okay. And Joanne uh, was at the uh, the actors, uh, uh, just the, the theater we worked with with Blau and Irving. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of all met in Paris and decided to do this Beckett, and it came out really, really well. It was comedy, and Beckett said some spies and liked it, and we got all encouraged, and then... <laughs> Phil Glass wrote us to come to New York because that's where the money was because LBJ was throwing it at us, you know. And so we got there, and uh, within six months, we had been umbrellaed by Alan Stewart, and off we went, you know. So. Oh, so Alan. We were part of La Mama for three years. Wow. Three, four years. The two great, I mean, Mommy and Daddy were Alan Stewart and Joe Papp. That was Mommy and Daddy, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we would not have existed without either one of them. In those early days in Soho, I'm, I'm just trying to diffuse some of my own myths. Yeah. Were you making pieces and moving sort of gallery to gallery? Scenes? Yeah, we did you know? the gallery scene. We never performed in a theater for five years. Okay. Uh, we were at, we did Paula Cooper. We did uh, you know Block Gallery. We did Castellis. We did the Museum of Modern Art. We did you know we were part of that group that would follow. Um, you know, the Grand Union, the dance company, mm -hmm. you know, uh, all of those really kind of great dancers, Yvonne Rainier, and, you know, uh, uh, and uh, so we were kind of like, we would follow along. I remember we did Valentine with, with you know, from Marcel Duchamp with, uh, you know, uh, John and Merce, you know, uh, it was it was a ball. We would go from, and we did supposedly the first theater in the museum, which was the Guggenheim, got dumped on for it, you know, uh, <laughs> just dumped on it. Get out of the Guggenheim. The so we and then when we did a tour, we went to the Henry Gallery, we did Pasadena Art Museum, we did every place except the theater. Hmm. And the first time we ever went to a theater, really, was when uh, uh, we went, uh, we did the Becketts when we kind of came back at Theater for the New City, when it was all the way in the West Village, I think it was. And um, one night, we had two people in the audience. It was really rainy, we're doing the Bee Beaver, and we're doing, <laughs> you know, we had two people in the audience. One of them was Joe Papp. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, you want to come over to my house? And so we went, and that was uh, what kept us alive for six years. He made quite a home for you guys. Yeah. So you were doing all your early, I mean, a lot of the early stuff at the public? Uh, yeah, from 1974 on, we were at the public uh, for a good six years. He was a major, you know, he really supported us. We could use his shop. We, he gave us the old prop shop, which is now offices. That was a theater. Uh, That's where I and, saw it. That's yeah. where I saw it. Yeah. Because yeah. so, he let him just set up there. We, we just had a home within a home. It was just amazing. And before that, Ellen had got us off the ground and kept us alive with the, the kind of a Ford stipend and stuff. Mm -hmm. you know. Oh, really? Uh, so it was pretty lucky, you know, really. And then after Joe, uh, we were on our own, you know, but that was 10 years of support between Ellen and Joe. You know. Wow. Wow. That's a 
having those those heroes behind you so yeah, amazing. Yeah, they were amazing. And, you uh, know, we just wouldn't have existed without that. Mm-hmm. I, I think, think those people still exist, but they they seem, in, from how I recognize it, they seem to exist on a slightly smaller level than yeah. the public theater. So, like, the Kristen Martings of the world still mm-hmm. exist. And, right. But um, the here is a hundred seat theater, not the public theater, you know. So it's, right. um, it's. I think it's a little harder now for, but maybe not. You know, maybe elevator repair service feels like they they get a lot of support from the public. Maybe right. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think you know, like um, New York Theater Workshop, uh-huh. really behind ERS and right. several, yep. and the, the 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 people that the three pianos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are yeah. visionaries, but it's. Um, it's a different time and a different funding structure. Yeah. And did you guys ever think about, oh, we are in this to overturn, you know, American theater, or are you just in it to do sure. it? Sure. Uh, listen, there that. was a metaphor for how to do it, mm-hmm. and the metaphor was Grotowski's Laboratory Theater. And mm-hmm. when we were in Paris in '68, Grot came through and you know showed the Constant Prince and uh, you know Apocalypse and you know all of the great shows. Then that's when he still had the company, yeah. you know. And then Ruth and Joanne went off and studied with him in Aix-en-Provence, and then we got real close. And I started changing money with Cheeselag. <laughs> <laughs> he babysat for us when we went over to London to see uh, Constant Print. Uh, uh, and um, what happened was there it was. It was this image of you don't have to go to Broadway to make it in New York. You don't have right. to do what Tennessee did, which right. was do the Broadway number if you ever want to get your work up. Which served uh, Tennessee for the first few plays, but not for the work that he wanted to do correct, that was correct. different. Yeah. And so what here was an example of a bunch of people that went into a cellar, and Wroclaw was a bond out. It wasn't this beautiful college town that it is now. It was bond out. And uh, <clears throat> then they hid in the basement and did their shit for three or four years, and then they toured it, and then we were a worldwide hit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, off they go to New York, and Jackie Kennedy comes, and off they go to Paris, and they're produced by Jean-Louis Barreau, and, you know, and so on and on, and here was it. You could do it. You could bust the system's balls this way if you just had the concentration. It was this kind of mystical feeling that if you just, you know, went far enough and were committed enough and were enough of a saint or a martyr or whatever you wanted to call yourself, you know, mm-hmm. that you could actually break the system. And as you described, the system is not a happy thing to confront the first time. When you, when you go out there, it, no. it's ready to kill you. You know. I mean, it's great for some people. It really, it really does support some people. But yeah. um, if I was think if you're, if it's not supporting you, I don't know. You have to have a certain way. kind of mind. You yeah. know, you have to be able to adjust to what it wants from you right. in a way. Yeah. And if you're not ready to adjust to what it wants, it's a killer. It yeah. says, "No, we don't need you. You're not additive to the design." Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Taylor, what, who are some of the people that really kept you going, or some of the some of your heroes way back there? That you know, there must have been some that helped, well, um, uh, helped shape some of that. Yeah, was. you know, or, or Liz Suedos was somebody that I yeah? always wanted to work with, and mm-hmm. because I'd done this play of her, a musical of hers, when I was in suburbia, you know, um, and uh, and it was the first time I'd ever done a play that. Was just a little different, uh-huh. and um, 
I was, I think, 13 or 14, you know. So um, I had it in my mind that when I came to New York, I really wanted to work with Liz. And I, and I got an opportunity to work with her and learn a great deal. The best thing about Liz, she says, you gotta, you got to write plays like the Queen of Hearts, you know, <laughs> off with her head, off with her head, you know. And, um, and, I, and I, I think yeah, I, I really enjoy pastiche. You know, I like pulling from lots of different genres and styles and forms and stitching them all together and seeing what comes of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, I think I get a lot of that from Liz in some ways. So she she was somebody that's been very influential. And um, these guys, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I've been in New York for 17 years and I, I see basically everything Mabu Minds does, you know, and um, I think Gospel at Colonus is one of the great things I've ever experienced in the theater. So, I mean, th- those um, those types of uh, people. Hmm. Um, yeah, but then there, are there, then there are those those very commercial artists that sometimes break through that you just kind of... I, I, I'll go see anything the Mercedes Rule is in. So mm-hmm. you know that there there are all those kind of actors that um, usually they're actors. I don't tend to respond to the plays that make it through um, to the big stage so much. But the actors I I often respond to. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that. <laughs> you know Ethel Eichelberger. I never met her, but she died the year that I moved here. And oh, okay. um, mm-hmm. and but I do feel like she's been holding my hand for mm-hmm. for the whole time I've been in New York City and I just haven't didn't know it until, you know, maybe about seven years ago. Okay. Um, and uh, does many people don't know who Ethel Eichelberger was. Uh, he was a performer in the Ridiculous Theater. Mm-hmm. And he but he but before that he was a classical actor at Trinity Rep mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. played Hamlet up there and all this other things. And then sort of fell in with the rabid bands of uh, of the ridiculous and it changed his life, and he changed his name to Ethel Eichelberger and became this amazing drag queen. And then he started doing his own things, uh, which were, um, well, he would do a solo leer, which was sort of, it incorporated films, and it was sort of set on a, an Appalachian mountaintop. Really wild 60-minute leer with film and his own uh, accordion playing. So, and he also... Was such a master. He knew how just to, uh, at the right moment, drop his uh, the, his dress to show that he had a huge tattoo of an angel on the back. <laughs> um, and uh, so he was very beloved and played around in the club scene for a lot. And then eventually arrived and did a lot of stuff at at PS One Twenty Two in the mm-hmm. old days. I learned a lot from. Uh, I was in a Karen Finley show for a while, where mm-hmm. I was basically an extra, and I would sit on stage dressed as um, kidney dialysis Lazzaminelli, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I would, I would just basically watch Karen every single night, and she. Uh, I learned so much from that because she basically treated her 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 script as um, uh, like a jazz chart, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. and. And so it was there, and sometimes she would go off on a tangent, and certain nights she never would come back, you know. And, <laughs> and it was interesting to watch, but you you could tell those nights that people they they didn't people would say, oh, I don't I didn't like this, I don't like Ken Finley. I said, well, you have to come back tomorrow night, <laughs> so that you know if you could convince them to come back the next night, they would see her do it, and she goes off on a tangent, she brings it all back around, or she does something else with it, and it's 
the most incredible thing you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So um, the I learned to risk failure, um, to, to not be so concerned with perfection and um, and tying yourself down uh, necessarily to uh, a, a right way to do something is uh, it can often give you more than and give your audience more than if. You know, you, you mm-hmm. go by the beats and you do it all um, exactly the same every night. So I, I really, I've, I've held that you know, very close to me for for um, many years now. And I try to do it all the time. Even when I'm in a play like Midsummer Night Dream where they're like, you know, um, <laughs> do it the same way every night. You know, I'm like, uh-huh, okay. You know, and I slide. <laughs> and you come up against the people that don't. Ever don't work. play that. Don't play that yeah. way. And there's sometimes a little conflict. There was a little conflict the other night. <laughs> you know? But you just, you just say, well, this is I'm I've been hired to do my job. And they, they would have hired somebody else. So you know you you, wow. you you negotiate your way through that. But um, how has failure played a part in your stuff? Oh, enormously. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> it's made me really love unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to bring up one guy who was an amazing, uh, you know, uh, artist and influence on me and stuff like that. And he was a little bit, wasn't, well, he did drag, but he wasn't known as, you know, for his drag specifically. I'm talking about Jack Smith. Uh, And I think, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to see three or four Jack Smith things and see him in intimate ways sometimes when he did gallery shit and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I know the legend and I've seen he was just, creatures, you, Yeah, you've yeah. seen Flaming Creatures. Yeah. yeah, well. And then he was more, you know, he, I mean, it just, he was a fine artist too. I mean, I just saw a picture of a palm tree going like that. I remember going up to his loft one time and seeing he brought out a toilet bowl with blue water and a rose in it. And we just looked at the rose for a while. Everybody had to be very stoned to go to Jack Smith. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the guy was fucking amazing. I mean, you know, this is this unending uh, inspiration. I mean, he just you know, talk about varying, you know, getting, coming off the text and being mm-hmm. and improvising. I mean, he just would zip like this, you know, in his constant circles. But then um, I don't know whether you ever saw um, Ron Vaughter do Jack Smith. Uh, Roy Cohn, Jack Smith, the film that no. Greg Merton did. It's a great. Ron did a brilliant Jack, uh, you know, uh, with the character from Flaming Creatures, and uh, then did a Roy Cohn take too. That was his <laughs> show, you know, kind of deal. There must and, be a pretty good video of that. Somewhere. Yeah, Greg Merton did it, and I saw it at Greg's house, and it was uh, gorgeous. It's great. It's great. He did a really good. But that. <laughs> That's that's the closest you gotta get to Jack, <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know, yeah. other than Jack. And uh, I don't know. He was just, you know, he's all the way up there with all these other really. But I was really starting to think when I was working in Greece, what, where this tradition originated. You know, the whole idea of theatrical drag and the context and the world that is brought from it, and, and something that I love and has influenced so much. You know, I think it was Aristophanes. I, I think I think it's Aristophanes, and I think you can't do Aristophanes unless it's a drag. You know, I mean, there, there's no way to do those plays correctly. Yeah. I kind of think there's no way to do Genet unless you're in drag either. You yeah, know, yeah. kind of deal. So I mean, I've been feeling that actually about Midsummer. Yeah, I was right. like, This role, this Helena role, is written for a really tall man to play. Yeah. It's not written for a woman. Right. And, right. and one of the things that's happened is a lot of those great effeminate 
that feminine male actors have lost their roles and they've been reduced right. to um, BFFs or, or the villain. But they've lost those great roles to play and not to take them away from women, but, but it's, it is something that's interesting. To, 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 this is how this works. I mean, the Greeks would wear these shoes called cathornis. Uh, right, right. Yeah, to, to, that were high heel platform shoes. But and they made them, but it was just like walking in heels. Yeah, you know, it's heels. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's no different. When people say, or you're an experimental theater artist, I say, no, I'm a traditionalist. Right, right. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Right, right, right. Hmm. Yeah. How do you guys uh, feel? I know, I feel a certain uh, that you're both involved in your community in a way, and you work that into your performances in different ways. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that a bit? Um, I feel bad. like I'm, I'm always trying to find my community, and, and that's part of my, my struggle with my work, is yeah. I'm trying to find my community, and I don't have a community, and I, and I have all these people that I love that are kind of in the outside of my world, but we live in New York City, nobody sees each other or whatever. So I, I always feel... You know, I made. I wrote Lily so that I could get 36 people on stage with me dressed up in crazy outfits. <laughs> people that you know I want to hang out with, um, and have and have community. So, it, and that's not the only reason I wrote it, but mm-hmm. it, it's definitely, I think, one of the driving forces. And I've I've been wanting to create my own company, and uh, you know, not my own company, but a company that I'm a part of, mm-hmm. um, like what you guys have done. And uh, but I just. The logistics, <laughs> you know, I just have to find those people that want to handle the logistics. Yeah, yeah, more than I do. It's a different time. Yeah, a different time. And you, you, well, you know, I'm. I think Taylor's lucky because I've been looking for my community, and it keeps changing. Mm. Uh, for a while during gospel, I thought it was the Pentecostal church. Mm. I felt, well, you know, hey, I can tour. And I can be black if I tour, you know, kind of deal. Like, you know, I can recognize a black elevator from a white elevator by the music that's in the elevator, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, and that was, uh, I made all of these fantastic friends in the Pentecostal church and stuff. And, like, and then we went to Korea and did a show in Korea about this surrealist poet that we sang there. And I thought, well, I, I looked at Buddhism when I was younger, and maybe we'll, we'll get into the Korean thing and stuff. And then when I was working in Dollhouse and working with little people, suddenly I thought, well, I'm a little too tall, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I and I, I started rooming with uh, Ricardo and stuff like that. And I remember one great time we were in Norway, and we went into this great big breakfast with a smorgasbord breakfast and stuff like that. And I saw Ricardo, and he had two or little things on his plate. I said, Ricardo. Did you see all the fish up there? Did you see the fruit and the this? And he said, where? <laughs> and I said, here, let me lift. you mind if I lift you up? Okay. And so I lifted him up, and there was all this food back there. And he, said, yeah, this, he came back with this plate. Waiting <laughs> this <stuff. laughs> but it was amazing to work with guys three feet, five inches tall for yeah. ten years. I mean, and to become really close to them, close to their families and stuff. This was just an amazing experience. So there was that community. And then, you know, when we got all involved with Williams and stuff like that and went up to, uh, you know, went up to Provincetown and, you know, and I realized that there I was inside of a gay community with a, a play by the greatest gay writer in America and the greatest, you know, probably the greatest playwright in America, you know, doing this experiment up there. And, you know, where do they feel comfortable? Well, 
Um, weirdly enough, I felt comfortable in them all. And so I couldn't tell what my community was because maybe the search for community is a theatrical, you know, <laughs> thing. You know, this is where you're going, you know. But anyway, this idea of what community do I belong to? But I can't belong to them all. Do I belong to nothing? I'm just an observer. Am I making a film about communities? But why do I feel so at home once there? Because each time I start a project, I kind of live the project, and with the project, gather the community, and right. with the community, live the idea, the role, the context, and how it was written, and what it's saying, and where it fits into this so-called melting pot, you know. Um, the one thing that I did find out was I really am looking at culture when I say community. I'm not looking at class, because I'm always firmly have a problem upper-class things, you know, and I just, you know, but I don't have a problem finding my way into these very different communities, but, you know. But uh, Doll's House is about, well, upper-middle-class people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had to, I got to be ironic about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I could have an attitude. Well, I mean, um, well, yours, your, I think, in some ways, your is first, like, if there was this world culture beat mu music movement, yeah. you were right in there with it, with it, like with gospel and with the thing that was referencing Brazil, which was uh, right. Anti Where you're in, yeah. yeah, you know all those things. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, it's a lot about framing, isn't it? Or well, the music is a big key, you know. I mean, Natalia, you're a musician, essentially. Yeah, uh, I got so that I could communicate as well or better with musicians than I could with actors. You know, basically, I got to hit where they were coming from, how they were working, what yeah. improvisation, and they weren't afraid of improvisation. In fact, they glommed toward it, yeah. and they needed it, and it was their sustenance. And every so often you'll work with a musician who doesn't know, who needs the notes written down, and it's, it's really, you suddenly feel this kind of tightness wrap around. Curiously enough, I found a lot of them in France, they were petrified to improvise. I would go over there with three or four American musicians, Oh. trying to, you know, yeah. integrate some French musicians into the comedy uh -huh. experience. And they were just petrified. They have to be, they have to learn their improvisation. You that's, know? That's, <laughs> you know? the, that's the real key, I think, actually, is what Theodore Ridiculous comes from, and I think what a lot of your work comes from, and certainly mine, is the Commedia. You know, it's the right. Greeks and the Commedia. And, um, I don't know why I said that, but just, but there was no, this element of, exactly, here's the script, and now let's see what happens. But what I was trying to think of, when I was watching you, you know, the, those things you have up on YouTube, I thought, this guy's a parole. Um, and his, 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 his yeah. you know, uh, from Italian Commedia, you know, this is, you know, the Fellini red clown, white clown thing, you're a white clown, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and you're a parole. And so that you're primarily in the French tradition because the Perrault became the big deal in the French tradition and then became to dominate the French tradition, whereas Alecchino was always the man in, right. in Italy, you know, yeah, kind yeah, of deal. Yeah. And, and um, I'm not about eating it. No, trying, eating it, you know. And, trying and, to get the girl to have right. sex with you. No, <laughs> and Perrault was always madly in love with the flower and right. the lid and yeah, the white yeah. face and the stuff like that and the same eyelashes that you have, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and it was gorgeous. And, you know, the, and the thing the, the with the kind of like jewel tear coming uh -huh. down and stuff, you know. And, you know, Perrault was astounding 
particularly important to French culture and French aesthetics and stuff like this. And so you're perpetuating a tradition of Corot in, you know, yeah. in American life, this particular And so that you get the two phases of comedy. You get the Italian rough and tumble, you know, animal-oriented, be a chicken, be a pig, and all that sort of stuff. And then you get the the more rarefied and more intellectualized and more poetic version when it gets to Paris, you know, and stuff. But um, I no. about Moliere and all that, uh, all those plays, and um, when they're performed, uh, are they performed? I think about this with the, with the, with the ad libs. We're doing a lot. I'm doing ad libs in the Midsummer Night Dream, right. and I feel like I'm playing the trickster. I get to ad lib. Mm-hmm. That's you know when I'm not playing the trickster, I'm playing the ad lib. But when I'm playing the trickster, I do. And we know that certainly the clowns uh, would ad lib a lot in Shakespeare stuff. Right. Um, and. We don't necessarily know if Shakespeare liked it. I mean, so the advice of the players, let the clowns not make up things, you know, yeah. that aren't given to them. But uh, which means they did it all the time. And um, so, so I, I think I think about that, and I think about Mo- in relation to the Perot and and Moliere and and there being groundlings in the Elizabethan uh, period that. That it seems like they were looser than yeah. Than My the, guess the is they were stuff. able to improvise and rhyme them, you know, and stay in Alexandria. Really. You know, I mean, they you know, bad. kind of like a real great, you know, Jamaican dub artist can do. It can uh-huh. just, you know, spill it out. But I bet you they stayed to the head timers and then they stayed to the rhyme. The but they could, they were improvising. I'm sure yeah. of it. You know, well, here's the other thing I want to say is, you know, you're got this really great tradition in that you write material, you direct material, and you perform it. I stop at number two. You know, I write it and I direct it, but I don't perform it. But and the only... Well, I, I perform some films performed. and stuff, you know. Yeah. You know uh, but I'm not a really... That's not the big thing for me, right, you know. Right. Uh, and But, you know, with... Uh, of course, Moliere, it was. Right. You know, it was all all the writing and all the directing was built toward his performance and stuff like that. So I have a feeling that I'll bet that he was a great improviser. I'll yeah. just bet. You know, yeah. I just he can't not be with that sort of creative steam behind him and mm-hmm. stuff like that and three outlets for it. Right. Right. They're all thinking performance. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the boss. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I get kind of caught up in well, I was doing my play Lily, The Lilies of Friends in San Francisco and the direct, we had six directors for mm-hmm. one for each act and, and the, um, the, once we opened the directors left and there were as there always are after you open there's problems there's still a problem here and there and, mm-hmm. and the actors have to go out on stage each night and exist in that in that moment that doesn't work <laughs> that everyone in the audience knows doesn't work you know it yeah. doesn't work fellow actors everybody knows but because the directors are gone you just have to exist you can't continue to work on it and being the playwright um, and the actor I of course would work on it every night <laughs> and there was a, there was conflict um, with that and mm. I, I guess my uh, they were, and I had to we had to negotiate and figure all that stuff out and I had to basically say that's my play I'm going to change it if I want you know you know I, I think we did but, that with Dollhouse a lot we every time we opened we changed something yeah we didn't have an opening huh. I think there were 35 openings in, and, so, and every time <laughs> every time we changed something sometimes really big thing cut out an commission <clears throat> but are you there every time yeah see, I saw every show you're, I saw you every see show. every show yeah. so you're but what so I was, you're there to to work with them on it. That's right. You're not you know, I want to because I think that's what keeps it alive. Uh-huh. I think that if you you it'll die if you you yeah. know ten repetitions without a change in it. That yeah. you know I think it has to. 
have this infusion of new energy yeah. all the time and a new attitude and stuff. I honestly think that's what keeps it alive. Yeah. Are you yeah. going back and giving notes every night? Um, I don't write anything down. But okay. if I, you know, if I can see a performance and I'll get one or two new ideas, I'll go back and talk them over with people and say, try this. Mm -hmm. And are they mm -hmm. usually new ideas or you see somebody do something on stage you don't like and you say... No, they're always new ideas. I don't yeah. give negative notes. That's awesome. I, you know, I, uh, I don't know a lot of directors that give negative notes, yeah. but it always kind of cramps the actor up. Uh -huh. Like, okay, you know, he doesn't like that. You know, But, I mean... I would rather say, well, why don't you go that route and give this a try and stuff like that, and you know, and yeah. let's add this line and play around with this and stuff. It's, I think it's always good to give a positive note, you know, yeah. and keeps the energy up, hmm. you know. Are, how are you giving notes and in it at the same time? <laughs> I used to be self-conscious about that because I came from that such a the theater world that tells you there's a certain way to do things. Yeah. And they always said, you know, you can't act in your own plays because then the other actor will be self-conscious that you're judging them. And at a certain point, I just kind of got over that. I was like, everyone's always self-conscious you're judging them, whether you're the director or not. And, and the, the job is to let go of that and, yeah. and to get rid of your self-consciousness so you can create. So I kind of just let go of that. And I just, if, I'm, if I'm in one of my plays and there are other actors around me and... Um, and we're, we're doing something, I, I mean, I tend to say, oh, let's try this, you know, instead of, I, I try to think of them as collaborators instead of that I'm in charge of them. Um, hmm. That way we get to make it together, if we're, you know, because mm -hmm. it's the most collaborative art form there is, so if you don't want to collaborate, you probably shouldn't work in the theater, you know, so um, I, I tend to, I tend to see it that way, and if, um, and they often will just come to me and ask me, you know, uh, because I'm on stage with them, they'll say, wow, I, w I wanted to do this moment. And I say, you don't have to ask, just do it. Let's yeah. see if it works, you know. Um, and that's the, that's kind of how I try to work. But, um, but I, I'm also finding my way working with other directors, um, with, with directors on my plays that I'm in. So that's a whole other game. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm more interested in this model where the director is with you for the whole time. You know, um, yeah, I mean, we're controlled a lot by the economic model of this. You know, these directors, uh -huh. they finish a play and zip, zip, and yeah, two days they're off doing, doing something else. And they're doing so many plays in a year, they can't do anything except what they did the last time. Right. And then they they'll just recycle that a little bit and yeah. stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't know. This is the difference about it being a project or you're just a director jumping from theater to theater doing a series of gigs, you know. Uh, and I just can't work that way. And, you know, I'm ready to, you know, take the consequences of working this way, which is, you know, yeah, every, every time you, you start over, you start from scratch, you gotta look for the money, you gotta build it from zero, you gotta kiss as many asses as possible. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just unending. And it starts all over, no matter what kind of background you have or what rep you have, you start from zero. And you're the first dollar you get for seed money is, the big key to everything, you know, and stuff mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. you know. But, but what, so, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, not to cut you off, but the, so you do a, a big project, and yeah. you, you spend all this time working on it, and then the tradition of um, off-off-Broadway or whatever we want to call it is you do it at the most 16 times, and then, and then if you tour it, it has a life, right. but if you don't, it's over with. And does that just, 
for me, I, I'm I'm feeling like after 17 years of working that way, I'm at the end of my rope with it, and like I just don't want to work that way anymore. So, I, and I figured out a way to tour all my solo stuff. That's easy, but the big things, I don't know how to do it. So, so I, you know. it's really complicated. I mean, it really is. Yeah. And sometimes they just die because you have no gigs for them. Uh -huh. The thing is that if you build a kind of reputation with certain European and Asian festivals and you have successes there, mm -hmm. chances are they'll bring you back. Yeah. So that they'll take the show on faith or they'll come to it when it's in New York mm -hmm. and make it a, a, an attempt to get there, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, you know, if you're a solo act, then you, you know, you're there, it's easy. <laughs> but you try to bring a company of 25 people and a set and this and that and try to get the money to do that. It's just fucking enormous negotiation. It's just really, really, really <laughs> difficult and you and know do you personally do that or have you found the well a guy this guy who books who's good uh -huh. tony mccochi has been booking he booked dollhouse he books gospel colonas he, uh -huh. you know books a lot of my stuff yeah. and he's very well connected with theaters you know theater festivals worldwide that's what he does you yeah. know and so i mean the reason we got three shows into edinburgh was Tony, you know, Tony made the original contact. I knew that the guy was taking over the Edinburgh Festival because he was Australian and he, the guy, the previous guy at the Edinburgh Festival hated my guts. He was, you know, he just thought I was just completely full of shit. This new guy kind of liked my stuff, so we went right from Gospel to Dollhouse to Peter and Wendy mm -hmm. and they were all very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, but it didn't help them get to London. Not one of them got to London. We right. came very close to the Barbican, but not really? quite, you know. Wow. Nothing got to London, even though five star reviews in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all basically it's kinkier than you think. <laughs> you know, who knows who uh who's hung out with who, you know, who's the lover of who and you know, it, it's just you know, it's really so personal. It's so personal. How to worm your way into a complicated, you know, extremely complicated and complex city with a big show that's expensive. Mm -hmm. We almost got Dollhouse into a West End run. And unfortunately, but the, the thing is, the guys, they, they get injured a lot. You know, they, they're, they're not that healthy, you know. Uh, and uh, I knew that I couldn't commit to what they wanted to, which was eight performances a week for 16 weeks. Uh, and that's the only, I knew that I would be replacing guys the second week. Mm -hmm. And there aren't that many really talented little people. I, we, we tried to replace a couple of people. We found one guy, you know, mm -hmm. who, who was up there. Luck, I, I just was incredibly lucky. We started out with Peter Dinklage. Uh -huh. Then Peter went off. You know, we lost Peter, but we still had three great, great people. And then it started falling off. You start getting guys that, you know, that, that, that really think theater is more like a circus and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and stuff like that. But they hadn't had serious training because who would take them? Right. You know, you know, where are they going to get serious training? Or they get TV things or they play these little, you know, cameo this or yeah. somebody decides they have to play a hamburger or, you know, they get more ad, you know, or, or they're up at Rockefeller Center or something else, you know. And so you're not going to get them to be able to deliver Ibsen in a Victorian mode, you know, the way Mark can and things like that. Uh, so I knew I couldn't sustain, I couldn't sign this contract. I couldn't say I could bring this show in eight times a week for 16 weeks and, and have it solid. I just couldn't. And so we didn't take it. And yeah. that was what? 
Well, and that was our, our chance for a West End run. But I wonder why they wouldn't say, okay, well, let, how about four times a week, and we'll also bring in Peter and Wendy and do that four times a week. I don't know. It's somehow, when it all gets on the spreadsheet, it doesn't make sense <laughs> that way. Yeah. Different people, have different you done stuff. Have stuff in rap ever? I mean, have you? No. I'm hoping sometime to be able to do it in rap. Because yeah. there's some really, you know, it would be a great rep. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. We're well, actually kind of you know. working. What's the, the next project you're working on? It sounds almost like a rep. Well, it of, is. It uh, is. The next, it puts it all together. Well, I'm working on this thing that's supposed to uh, open at the Ellen Stewart, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but it goes back 35 years. It, way, way back, the first thing that I did, uh, I'm lucky enough to win Best American Play on it, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it was called the Shaggy Dog Animation, and it was like the third in the animation series, and then I followed it up with the second in the series called Echo Porco, and before that, at BAM, we had done The Warrior Ant. And they're actually a trilogy. It's a love affair that goes through two um, uh, transformations. Uh, the, uh, it's uh, an animal and a, and a guy, an animal and a junkie, you know, Rose and, and John. And then John dies and he's reincarnated as a pig named Porco. And uh, Rose dies and she's reincarnated as a warrior ant, you know, uh, a feminist culture for ants. And uh, Rose comes out gay. And um, it just goes on and on and on. But it's kind of a little bit of a send-up of the kind of karmic wheel where you go, further down the animals and finally end up as an instinct. You're not moving up into Buddhist <laughs> nirvana. You're moving down, yeah. you know, kind of deal. But the love goes on. So the, the goddess is immortal, and it doesn't matter what incarnation you are. You know, first of all, Rose loves John, and then John becomes a pig, and Rose falls in love with the pig, but the pig doesn't recognize Rose because she's of the wrong incarnation. But then when Rose becomes the ant, the pig falls in love with the ant, and it, it, it's a big complicated thing, but it goes on for two incarnations. But it sounds like you, you want to see all three of them. Yeah, I'd love to see how it just, you know, becomes. It's about media. It's about uh, animals that become cartoons. And, like, the title of it is La Divina uh, Caricatura, you know, the Divine Cartoon. And it's a send-up of Dante. As if Dante was made by Warner Brothers, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of the Animaniac Dante, you know, kind of thing. I love cartoons, and um, I used to be a comic book freak, and then I translated that to wanting to make films, and now I'm just doing Dante's cartoons. And you're, now you're about to do Lily's up in Boston? Yeah. Uh, Where are you going to do it? Uh, Lily's going to be in the Oberon Space Inn at AOT. Uh, oh, cool. Cool. Um, yeah, and it's the first time I'm doing it where there's just going to be one director. Um, the, we've had, uh, there'll be three productions of it. Right now they're, they're doing a production in New Orleans. New Orleans. Um, they're rehearsing it. And, uh, and they're working for about six months once a week in rehearsals for this thing. It's a five-hour play that has 36 people in it, and yeah. so it's a lot of work and stuff. And um, But they're rehearsing it for six months, and then they're going to do it four times. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But uh, in San Francisco, we did we had a five-week run of it, and we rehearsed for three weeks. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Um, and in New York, it was, I think, three months, and we did a, we did a month run here. 
Um, and in and and in Boston, they're just doing thirteen shows, but we're gonna right. do it. You know, rehearse for a month. And a half. Well, you know, Taylor, the only thing that's really saved us is that these these shows lasted a long time. Yeah. Dollhouse lasted ten years. Yeah. And Peter and Wendy for fifteen years, and Gospel is now in its thirtieth year. Jeez. It's going. You know, eighty yeah. percent original cast. Everybody who's not original is dead. You know, and it's been replaced, you know, but, you know, I mean, if you're alive, you're still in the cast, you know. Uh, we even get good luck from Morgan coming from. Uh, but uh, it's it's amazing that these things just kind of keep going because they kind yeah. of build their own energy. And, uh -huh. you know. Well, that's so, what I found is that, you know, I, which I feel so sad about playwrights and actors and directors uh, that are working nowadays so much that... Um, but they don't have the experience of having these long runs and being able to experience what it's like to... When I did my show, The Beast, I've done it over 200 times uh, all over the place in lots of different venues, you know, from from a 50-seat venue to a 1,000-seat venue, just right. all over. And, um, and you learn so much about the piece and how you... How, how to communicate to the various audiences and the various time slots and the various... Um, Languages that are also out there, and 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 you you learn what you're capable of as, as an actor and how you can grow, and mm -hmm. um, and and it's just I just think long runs are so important, and um, that's why I'm really trying to figure out a way to make sure that all of my pieces have the same opportunity as these solos. Mm -hmm. It just takes a lot more, you know. It takes a bigger machine to move them. Yeah. 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 Um, you need somebody on the lookout for you. Well, all these different festivals and see what options there are for you because, you know, you're pretty famous now and you should be able to jump from festival.com to, you know, uh, yeah. to the Netherlands to yeah. something in Germany. And you should everybody, be able to, you know. everybody that has, like, young Jean Lee, is, yeah. she's mm -hmm. showing all her stuff and stuff, but right. she has a system in place. She really was smart and she she lost her shirt for a couple of years and then but she got a system in place so that her work can do all of that and they the presenters don't want to produce your work no. they want it to be able to be presented that's right you, know, you have so to have it in a truck unload it and yeah. set it up in 24 yeah. hours and then yeah. you're okay yeah but you have to have the complete you have to have a, a company completely organized you have to yeah. be on tour yeah. so that's is it. that mabu has been the rock for you as far as that well it's actually tony 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 you know, you know, tony. Uh, you well, know right now it, but, mabu but he's not writing the grants is he no 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 we started as an ensemble and we don't, we've existed for 40 years, and now we're like a producing ensemble. Mm -hmm. Many of us produce, but we produce, in, you know, with different groups of people. I mean, I use musicians a lot more, a lot more, mm -hmm. uh, and puppeteers a lot more than some of the other directors. And so a lot of us kind of, uh, I mean, I have a manager who just books my stuff, not the yeah. rest of my book at this particular point. So that, uh, uh, I, I, Finally understood that if we were going to sell it to festivals, it has to be packaged. And so the um, a really good friend of mine who runs the shop at the Spoleto Festival, Spoleto USA, uh, he always organizes it, puts it together, budgets it, hires the truck, puts the shipping deal, you know, gets all the prices about what it costs to ship it here or whether you can fly this or ship this or that and works out the trajectory, so, you know, so that... If we are on tour and do two or three gigs on tour, like if we 
going from Germany to Spain to, you know, then there's all this cross the border stuff and the truck. It's a big That's deal. Right. And you need I know, I know. a technical director who'll take all of that over for you. So you don't have to even think about it. Right. I mean, it's not your job to think about it. It's, it's, it's somebody else's job to do all that logistical stuff. And they're, they're much better than you. You don't yeah, want, they don't want you in the mix. You, you'll make all the wrong decisions. You'll fuck everything else up. You know, and, you know, and they know how to handle union crews. If you're going to Spain and you're dealing with a Spanish union, then you got, you, you know, be careful of the Italian unions, you know. Uh, so, but they know all of this and stuff. And so, um, you know, you just need that person. Yeah. You, you need that person, and then you're okay. Yeah. If you can really rely on it. Without that person, person you're not. And you're yeah. not going to get the festivals to recreate the show each time. No. They don't want that. No, that's they, I'm, they that's to, why I'm going to the regional theaters. They want it to arrive on a truck, unload, set up, and that's what they do. How often are you working in the American Regional Theaters? I never worked in an American Regional Theater in my entire ah, life. <laughs> never once. Never somebody, once. Somebody wants to Well, that. yeah, I mean, we went to Washington and did Peter and Wendy there, but, you know, yeah. I didn't, you know. Uh, so I never created a show in with, a regional with theater. I never created a show in a regional theater. I've toured to regional theaters, you know. Yeah. Uh, we toured to the Guthrie. Right. You know, originally the gospel church to the country, uh, but I've never created a show in the Has anyone ever asked you? Nope. <laughs> I got this little reputation, I think Bobby Brewstein, you know, <laughs> about going over budget. And oh, yeah? So, you know, and so I don't think anybody... Really you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think I'm safe from being asked mm -hmm. to do shows at regional theaters. Um, I think... Um, what? I never, yeah, well, I never did it though. I never did it. No, it, okay. that doesn't seem to be a venue for me. Yeah. You know, uh, basically because I like to bring my own actors, and you know, uh, once I go to a regional theater, I have to work with their crew. Yes, and so, you know, why if I've spent fifteen or twenty years learning to communicate with an actor, do I have to go and communicate with somebody that I just met? Yeah. You know, I mean, they may be great, and if I knew their work and saw, you know, tons of videotapes and had seen them, and, you know, if Mark Rylance was at a regional theater, I'd go there, you know, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, but, but not too often, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so it, it doesn't, that doesn't fly for me, okay. you know, um, and I've never been asked, so it, 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 it cuts both ways, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, that's one of the, the premises of Under the Radar is that it, when it started was mm -hmm. that there was almost this underground of theater that existed without uh, tapping into the, the people that were holding the American Well, theater. that's very true, Mark, because I started out at the Actors Workshop in San Francisco with Jules and Herb, mm -hmm. you know, which was one of the original, original, you know, regional theaters it, I, when the Ford Grant started. This was, mm -hmm. you know, back in... The early '60s, and um, you know, uh, it, I got bored. I mean, it, it just was not stretching for me. And then I got into the so-called experimental wing, and then decided, well, I wasn't there. I had to go off and there. Yeah, it was. It was kind of, you know, uh, outside the United States. Uh, I, yeah. It, well, I mean, story, you know. actually, this is. I had a good time at the kind comedy. of concern with me right now yeah. is that as. Europe has supported 
this underground of work That's right. for a long time. Yeah. And the Wooster Group and Mabu Mines and a lot of other people, Elevator Repair Service, right. wouldn't be existing as well if there yeah. wasn't for these co-commissions and presentations That's over right. in Europe. And now that they're melting down like the rest of the world, it's yeah. getting tricky. So, um, well, and I'm worried about that. How do we keep going? You know, crazily enough, I mean, this was an enormous surprise. Muriel Mayette happened to see Dollhouse when we were in uh, Paris, mm -hmm. and she really loved it. And she asked if I'd be interested in coming to the Comédie Française and doing something there. She said, you know, that they would like to learn to work another way. You know, and stuff oh, wow. like that, and that's the way it all started. And we ended up doing uh, Streaker Name Designer, yeah, uh, which I was actually really happy about. You know, there was a great big theater with a fantastic. You should see that costume shop. <laughs> oh, you just fall on your hands. You know, you know, thousand dollars. You know, and this brilliant guy to designing all the clothes and this. I mean, it was just it's just unbelievable. You know, Basil Twist designed for me, and we would just go drool at the costume shop, you know. You know, but uh, it was it was great. I mean, it's so political, it was so complex, but we kind of wound our way through. The thing is, it was political, it was complex, it was very French, but it wasn't dumb. There were a lot of smart people and a lot of talented people who were also, you know. Now, does that, that show live in rap there, or will it come back? It was in rap, and it very probably will come back next year. They have to wait through the elections because it's such a political deal that now that Sarkovsky is gone and they were Sarkovsky peaceable, you know, oh, okay. that they got to see just how the socialists are going to treat them and what kind of budget they're going to get and all that sort of stuff. You know, mm -hmm. everything changes when, you know, in France, you know, the politics change, just the whole country has a different color, you know, some mm -hmm. kind of thing, you know, so who knows what's going to happen there now. Well, um, we have a whole room of uh, young uh, theater directors here, or some of them are middle-aged. And, and what would you tell them uh, about how to get onto this track, or what would you tell a young director? I would just say, you know, this is my issue with America in general, is that everyone's waiting around for a job to show up instead of going out and making their jobs. Yeah. Um, and go out, make your job, make your job. Uh, I haven't had a survival job in over 10 years now and it's because I made a commitment to making my jobs um, nobody get, uh, this is the first Midsummer's Night Dream is the first uh, job anybody's hired me for it, you know <laughs> that, that I didn't make wow um, and do you feel you have enough power years, now that you can yeah. protect yourself in a situation like that so that you can still be yourself you don't uh, have to yeah I feel yeah. like my power comes from that I don't need it right you know my power comes from if I walk into the room and suddenly yeah. they say to me well, we want you to do it this way, this way, this way, this way. And I say, well, okay, how about collaborating with me and let's figure out a way that we both want to do it, you know. Yeah. Um, and if they say no to that, then I can say, oh, I'm not interested in this anymore and thank you. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and luckily they didn't do that. They were wonderful, you know. But right. um, but I, I, that's where my, pa my power comes from that I've made, I make things and I've made it op opportunities and I don't have to do stuff I don't want to do. Yeah, I guess what, grows and what I think, uh, you know, he's talking about is you got to have a kind of a, a bottom line, an emotional bottom line. Yeah. You know, I mean, hmm. yeah, I'll do that if you really want me to, but I won't do that. I won't go there. Um, you know, I'm not just going to throw away, you know, 
10 years of what I've developed in the way I work and stuff like that. You want me or you don't want me. It's, you know, and that's, that's a good feeling. It, it means you don't feel victimized. And yeah. You, don't, hmm. you know, you feel protected a little bit. Hmm. Um, I think we have some time for talk, uh, questions. If anyone has some questions, I'm all... Yes, ma'am. How do you define success? How do you define success? Lasting a little bit. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty old now, and it's interesting that uh, just the fact that I feel that I'm still around is, I think, you know, a, a fairly success-oriented feeling. Uh, you know, a, a modicum of respect, a modicum of power, you don't want to ask for too much. I mean, you know, I, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, unless you're kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, I, I wouldn't try to be a superstar. I would try to uh, to define your world and to try to become a respected center in that world. I think respect has a lot to do with it. If people think, oh, that guy's pretty good, that guy has good ideas, that, that woman is hot, you know, and she has an energy that, that animates this particular area. Um, don't ask for too much, but ask for enough that you feel you can be yourself inside of it. Um, but it doesn't really connect up with money. It just doesn't. Because, you know, if you want money, you know, uh, it's hard to, you know, y y there's a little, you know, uh, a little whoredom involved. You know, uh, you've got to do things, you know, that are just to have a bottom line click at the end of the, just to hear the cash register bell. Um, I don't think money's the answer to it. And I, I don't think wealth uh, and success automatically locked together. Yeah. Another question? Or Taylor? Do you want to answer? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, every time I go out on stage, I think, is it going to be a tragedy or a comedy? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I don't know ever. Um, and I think that that's success to me, is that the next day I, I still kind of go, is it going to be a comedy or a tragedy? And we yeah. don't know. And um, if that's that's if the audience leaves and they're considering the ideas and and furthering the conversation of the piece and um, uh, and dream helping to dream the culture forward, then that's a success in in my eyes. Um, and if I can get up the next day and still do it, then then I'm <laughs> successful. If I can't, then I have failed. And but I also think that failing is. Um, Underrated in our <laughs> culture. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good point. Sure. Yes. So, what, what um, events, news event that's going on now seems extremely theatrical, even though we treat it and we're supposed to look at it as if this has nothing to do with theater? Okay. Well, I just read this now. I mean, today I just read about Greece and it was just. 
This is so extra. <laughs> this is so exotic. <laughs> I mean, it's all these, all the different parties, and everybody's fighting, and nobody can agree, and they're going to have another election, and and it's and the the economy is crashing, and the country's not going further right; they're going further left. Which I've never heard of that happening before. When the, you know things yeah. crash, usually everything goes right, and people try to hoard, and you know. So, um, so I, I don't know. It's fascinating to me. I, I don't. I'm sure somebody will. I don't think I'll make a theater piece about it, but uh, I hope somebody does. <laughs> Anything tickling you in the news? Yeah, all of it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have this thing, you know, I love to read the paper, uh, and I have yet to really find a way to take it seriously. <laughs> uh, because what I'm reading, I like to read the Times. Uh, because kind of what I'm reading is an attitude and a bunch of people who are really trying to influence me to think a certain kind of um, quasi-liberal masked uh, undercurrent line. And I just think it's so entertaining how desperately they're trying to really do my head, you know, about making me think about this, about that, and, you know, making me think about that and that, that, and, you know, and the pundits say this and the pundits say that and the thing like that. And I think the whole news world, you know, uh, whether it's on media or on newspaper is fucking hilarious, you know, uh, and uh, honest to God, um, I'm sure a lot of things in the news are real, but by the time they get in the news and print it that way they don't seem real no. they, they 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 seem they seem like um you know uh people are lawyering to for their point of view constantly and stuff like that so i honestly think that the smartest way to read about current events is with a healthy dose of i mean you know they used to say about pravda mm-hmm. uh the russian newspaper that you know if pravda said it it's exactly the opposite of what it said, <laughs> you know. And I have a feeling that they're that that's kind of close to you know what our our, our media is you know mm-hmm. doing to stuff. But I think that becoming a media culture like this uh, is kind of I've been doing a lot of thinking about. It. I'm kind of a McLuhan head, you know, and I really do feel that you know um, that we are becoming so media oriented. You know, I love to watch how many people are in their cell phones and how many people have got their ears in, you know, and stuff like that, and try to find out what world they're in. They're they're in the world of the tune that they've just hit, you know. Uh, And so I think you're in the world of the paper you buy or in the world of the TV program, you know. But I I think that, in general, uh, it's all incredibly theatrical. I'm a little bit of a postmodernist, and and I think that, you know, that this is... A good fiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's um well there's this there was also another article about the trees and how the trees are all killing people. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 And I thought this is the best fiction ever. I wanna write a I wanna write a play where all the trees, trees. are killing everybody. Yeah. Like yeah. really yeah. killing everybody. Yeah. We have another question over here. Yeah, in that same vein of I guess fiction. Do you feel like you're a citizen, or do you feel that you're still ostracized as a killer, or do you feel like you are displaced at all? Do you feel like you have kind of been in our society, or can kind of develop within our constraints? Oh, 
Um, I, I, I feel like a citizen when I'm sitting here with y'all, you know, and I'm yeah. talking to this man and this man, and I feel like, you know, I, that's why I feel like a citizen when I've got the people around me. And I don't feel like a citizen when I watch television. So I don't know, you know, I don't really, it's kind of always changing. It's like kind of what Lee was saying about community is with each project, it's a different community. <laughs> and with each environment I'm in, I feel like I belong or I don't belong. And, and oftentimes, I went down to Tennessee to this short mountain, um, which is the, the oldest uh, commune. And it's a gay commune and there's... Um, and you go, you're walking through the woods, and there'll be 500 drag queens in the woods <laughs> in rural Tennessee. And they, people bring two tents, one to sleep in and one for their drag. <laughs> it is magical. And you go there, and, and you're walking, and one day you feel like, I don't belong here at all. Now, I'm, you know, I'm like drag royalty, you know, so if I don't belong, who does, you know? And then another day I'll think like, I'm drag royalty, I belong, you know? So it just, uh, it's like, uh, it, it, none of that stuff seems to matter. It just seems to be the moment. <laughs> um, You're right. It's completely ephemeral. I, I second that a hundredfold. It's the moment, you know, you know, yes, this moment we're citizens and go out on the street Somebody right. hits you over the head and you're not. <laughs> you know? yeah. But, you know, I think of both of your works as, in a certain way, subversive and political in my book. Now, mm -hmm. I can't completely explain it, you know, but um, I do feel that your political works, you're responding to the moment here and throwing a little bit of chaos in it, in your work and in your work, that is that isn't good unsettling in some ways for me. The work you make seems to be situated socially and also um, artistically in a, what I would call a political way. I don't know. Maybe you don't feel that. I, I think that's kind of right on. Mm -hmm. um, I was just trying to figure out what some of the history is. I've been getting really interested in, you know, France in the 19th century, particularly around Al Alfred Jarry. Mm -hmm. And his whole cult, which was around the That's theater of Lunet Paul, yeah, he w he created uh, this incredible character, you know, U Ubu of uh -huh. Ubu Wa, and he he was gay, and most of that world was gay. Uh, and they were in the middle of the surrealists. They were in the middle of the symbolists. They were in the Lumet Post Theater. That theater, for example, the classic experimental theater of Paris, every production was done twice. Once for all the artists in the neighborhood, and the second time for the critics who dumped on it, and then it, they just took it off. That was it. They would do it twice. And, um, but, you know, and he was, uh, it was, it was, uh, very familiar, that particular world. But that world changed aesthetics and politics. It invented black comedy. It invented hmm. comedy, the kind of irony that all of us have grown up in and live in. You know, I mean, you know, sure, there's different uh, twists and turns to black comedy. Uh, and, you know, uh, it can go from Harold Pinter to you and stuff like that. But it's still within the tradition of kind of, deadpan irony or drag irony or something like that, I mean, you're basically caricaturing 
the uh, the, uh, the icon, the, the the social icon that that we're working on, you know, kind of thing. So uh, I feel, yeah, yeah. I it, what we're saying is it's all bullshit. I mean, and you know, uh, <laughs> there's not much else that we're saying. <laughs> you know, Forever you know, and ever. Yeah, right, right, right. centuries. That's our role. Always say. Another question. I saw somebody out there. Oh, here, um, madam. You Sir. had a, a positive vision of what the theater is in the future. Because oftentimes I feel like I ask this question, I'm like, what's the theater of the future look like? And people are like, oh, I hope it exists, there's no money. But oh. if, you, if you have a positive view of the theater of the future, what does it look like? For me, the um, more rep, I think. Um, I want to see more rep. I want to see conversations uh, between artists and audiences and plays within the art. I'm not so interested necessarily in the conversation, like the talkback conversation. You know, yeah. I, I, I respect them and I think that they're they can be great and informative. But but I'm more interested in the art being the conversation and um, and I and I. And I think that rep is a way for that to happen. So that would be one of the things I'd like. And I'd like to see less um, uh, less boundaries, um, less, I, I, I don't like this phrase, but less gatekeeping for, for lack of a better phrase. Hmm. Yeah, I go along with that. I want to add, you know, more art, less marketing. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's the, you know, it's the salesmanship. I mean, what... The way it's being reduced in order to increase audiences or to appeal to a wider range or this or that. Um, I have, you know, I taught for a while uh, and I kept pushing development time, development time, development time, development time. People are just jumping. It, money is just dictating it. I mean, rehearsals are down to two weeks, three weeks. Uh, you're, you, you, there's no way that you can create something new. You have to just recycle what you just did the last time, and you know, and uh, you know. Uh, I just think that the economics are really screwing things. I mean, you just drool for Breck rehearsed Mother Courage for 12 months. Stanislavski rehearsed the Seagull for nine months. I mean, where are those? Times, you know, we're supposed to get this stuff up in 14 days now, and then we're compared with these geniuses who do these great shows, but they had a fucking year to do them, you know. Uh, you know, they can make mistakes. Where's the time to make a mistake? And the money exists. Sure, so I never feel like, oh, it's it, money's always the excuse, but it's never really the reason. And and, and so I, I think it's. It's there, it's just, and the audience is there, but for some reason we've trained them not to, um, to compartmentalize their experiences uh, a, a bit more mm -hmm. than I think is necessarily fun for us as artists. Theater used to be a religion. I mean, it used to be uh, the cult of Dionysus, and you used to do a play for the gods and whether, to see whether they liked it or not. And... You know, and it's theater is not really a church anymore. And when I did gospel and I was able to bring theater a little bit back to the church, it was just so exciting, you know, because there it was, a religious experience again, you know. Uh, and 
to do that, it has it has to be something about salvation. It has to be something about your soul gets involved. It's just can't be just entertainment, though it can't be without entertainment, because what would the soul do if it wasn't giggling, you know, kind of thing. Which is why maybe our work seems political, is because yeah. it's about salvation, it's about, mm-hmm. about consequence, and, um, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that's what I, I, I think of my work as, I'm trying to, trying to be saved in some way, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so, yeah, sure. So, and, and if that's comes across as political, then politics are a part of that. Mm-hmm. Other question? This one right back there, yes. Uh, just uh, while we're on the topic of uh, the language you guys are using to describe your work as, um, as political or maybe not political or just the language around it, I'm curious, um, as a multidisciplinary artist, as you were developing your artistic voice and your artistic vision, whether you were really conscious about the language you were using to Work you were interested in, or uh, if it was more of an evolution in, uh, in your journey of choosing the pieces you were working on or generating the work, you came to find out language later on? Mm. I mean, again, it's, it's, um, for me, it depends on the, on the piece. Um, each one dictates different language. Yeah. Um, it's all theater. I always say it's all theater. You know, they say it's all drag. You know, you're wearing your construction, your construction work. You're wearing construction drag. You're wearing, um, yeah. you're wearing your. I'm um, coming to see a reading drag. You know, or a, a conversation drag. Right? Um, and and so, and it's all stories. It's all theater to me. So uh, that's what I. That's what I feel. What I write in the grant material, that's different. Um, you know, uh, so. I, I, I try to be smart about that stuff because I know that um, if I say that I'm a playwright, they're not going to give me the performance art grant, you know. So um, I, I do think about that stuff when I write the grants, but when I make the work, I, I tend to just think of it as theater. Playmaking. Playmaking, yeah. It's all you plays, it's all stories. It's, you know, you break up your, your lover on the street. That's, that's a story, you know, that's a play. Play. I think that uh, I'll, I'll 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 buy that all of that. Uh, I I really feel that um, the language just dictates the mold. It's the key. It's 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 what's you know it's it, it's what you're. Is what music you've chosen. I mean, you're either going to do this in jazz, or you're going to do it in, you know, Trinidadian pan bands, or you're going to try to do it in new music take. It's just basically the formalism that you use to say what you're always saying, mm-hmm. you know. And you can say it in Victorian Ibsenite language, or you can, you know, say it in, uh, you know, in Sophoclean language, but, uh, uh, or you can say it in, you know, uh, doo-wop. Uh, but you're saying the same thing, but you're picking a different mode, a different formality. Uh, you're just hopefully learning a new music. And that's and, f- and that's fun. I mean, I shouldn't poo-poo all that stuff. It is fun to be to go, oh, it's it's neo-romantic postmodern. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really fun to think of <laughs> right, what, right. what it could be. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I have a question for me in terms of production process. 
since you have a longer rehearsal process, how much pre-production or what do you do before rehearsals start? Do you enter with a question? Have you planned it all out in advance and then kind of work with your actors in that regard? Or? I really dream a lot so that, you know, I feel that it starts to penetrate my life. And then I go through this thing where I believe, if I'm doing an adaptation, like if I do a Beckett or do an Ibsen or do something like that, you know, I try to get a hold of this little thing where I can, you know, channel this guy. You know, like Ibsen used to have a spider and he used to use a lot of aggression and he used to feed the spider fruits and stuff like that. And he used to write when the spider would go, you know, kind of deal. So, you know, uh, what, what I really feel is that the pre-production is a lot of dreaming and thinking about trying to find the vibe of, you know, that you're trying to do. It's harder when you're actually writing it yourself. You know, uh, you're not looking for somebody. If you're adapting something, you have to, you know, to find your way into that particular person. You have to find the Genet in me or to, to find the Sophocles in me or to find the Ibsen. Uh, but if I'm doing myself, it's not really myself. I'm finding who I was when I had these emotions. And I had this, I remember when I'm in, in, in working on the Shaggy Dog animation, I remember at that particular time, I was having a big love affair and I was listening to a tremendous amount of Phoebe Snow. So I was, I've got to channel Phoebe Snow. I've got to channel Phoebe Snow to get back here. So it was really, it's that kind of preparation. It's really not, on another level, if I'm, I'm usually working with an actor or an actress who is playing a kind of a lead for me, I usually formulate the work around a person. I mean, this is where I'm kind of different from other people. A lot of directors will have a concept and then they'll slap people in. They'll read people and say, oh, you this part, you this part, you this part. I just don't go that route. I get a hold of the people that I'm really dying to work with and love, and then I said, wouldn't that person be a great this? Mm -hmm. Or wouldn't that person be a hot this? And is or, that how you created like Peter and Wendy? With yeah, and that's when, when, when I was working with David Warlow and the Lost Ones, mm -hmm. that, you know, that's where I, I got that. I almost, and with, when I work with Ruth and Hodge, mm -hmm. you know, I work with Maud and Asnora, it was always I had the actor first in mind, and then I thought what would be the right way to get that actor's vibe out there and what would be a perfect context for that. Yeah. Oh, this play. Oh, that wow. play. Yeah. That's a Beckett thing. That's a, yeah. you know, that's, you know, or I would write it myself. But it always started with the person. So the mm -hmm. next step in pre-production is get the person you're collaborating with who symbolizes the rhythmic, the, the, the vibe center of this, who really has that thing going, and then build it around that particular person so that the person and the idea of the work join together. And then you're ready to do research. Then if you're doing an adaptation, you'll do a ton of research, you know, maybe with help or a dramaturg to help you and stuff like that, and learn all of these details and just enhance that picture that you've already started to put together between you and your, you know, your, your prototype of, of your statement. This person embodies your statement. And also this person, you have to be in love with them. You know, I mean, no matter who it was, male, female, animal, whether I had to be in love with them if I was going to do this thing with them, you know. And uh, it, it has to be a together journey, you know, kind of thing. Hmm. Um, we're coming down to the, the end of the wire here. 
God, it's been good. <laughs> it's been... <laughs> this has been uh, such an honor, and, uh, I, you know, it's been great to work with two great drag artists. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great compliment. That's a great compliment. And on this great drag artist stage. So thank you very much, Taylor. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.